Welcome to the Alcohol Rethink Podcast, the show designed for men who are ready to rethink the role of alcohol in their lives. Get ready to hear some awesome coaching insights, powerful tools, captivating interviews and first-hand experiences, all dedicated to helping you rethink your relationship with alcohol for good. I'm your host, Patrick Fox. Let's go. Hello and welcome to episode number 127 of the Alcohol Rethink Podcast. Today I am joined by an awesome guest. Her name is Danita Bremer and she is a shame and trauma coach for Latter-day Saint women. We in this interview have an amazing conversation about what Danita's upbringing was like with her father who drank alcohol and also we talk about how trauma can play a role in our lives and how we can begin to start moving through it. So without further ado, let's get stuck into the interview. Welcome to the show, Danita. Hi, thanks so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. I love having these conversations with people. I'm always so fascinated to to see like people's different experiences with alcohol or in your case, not with alcohol, but like the impact of parents of alcohol, for example. So before we dive into that, which I'm really looking forward to, we'd perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Danita Bremer. I live in the Denver, Colorado area. I have three teenagers. My youngest is 15. So that makes me feel really old. Um, and I am a trauma coach for Christian women. Mm. Cool. And I know like the legal age for alcohol is 21 in the in the States. Is that right? Still yes. 21. Yeah. But I know that some teenagers start drinking early. Like is I'm curious, you said you got a 15 year old. Like, is there been conversations around that in the household yet? Well, um, I would say most teenagers start drinking very young. I mm. might, if I had to put a, a guess on it, I would say the average age would be 16, 17, even here in the States when it's illegal. Um, we have had conversations with our kids. We, we actually subscribe to a health code that comes from our faith that includes not drinking alcohol. Um, but my husband and I are really basically the only members of this faith in our family. So our parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, none of them subscribe to this abstinence from alcohol. So really the approach I have taken is, listen, you're going to do what you're going to do. Just be aware that all four of your grandparents were alcoholics. So that's kind of more of what it sounds like in our home is I'm not naive enough to think that my kids will never try drugs or alcohol, but I want them to know what the consequences are. And we talk a lot about agency in our home and like having more um, power to make choices. And if they do choose to go down that route, just based off of history, they're very likely to become addicted and that will rob them of agency. And so that's, that's more what we talk about. Um, my oldest who is 19 years old and she actually goes to school at the university of Brighton there in the UK. Um, mm. she did experiment with alcohol by herself in her room 
And we found out about it and we found a bottle in her closet. And I don't even remember, we don't normally like go in and look through our children's things. She was, I think 17 at the time, but we somehow found this bottle and we just put it on her bed with a little note saying, when you get home, we'd like to talk to you about this. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, and so I know that there, you know, she's, she's already, she drinks, she goes to the pubs and things there. And I think that's part of being a human on earth. I do have a little bit of concern based off of my parents and my husband's parents that were drug and alcohol addicts, but ultimately I know that I can't, I can't control my kids. So that's how I approach it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And probably weren't expecting us to go in that direction at all. And I can't say that I was, but it's just something that's on my mind at the moment as well. Cause my daughter's 15 and she into rugby or yeah, rugby over here in the UK. And there's a big culture around alcohol in these kind of sports and stuff. So yeah, it's uh, brings up some challenging conversations and especially for your older daughter, right? Like being at Brighton university, like there's a big emphasis on, on drinking. My friend used to, used to go to Brighton. So I spent a lot of time down there. Um, Yeah. I mean, the message we really say is just be safe, you know, like don't be stupid. If you're going to go drink, go, go with people, cover your drink, watch your drink. Don't let it out of your sight. Cause there's a lot of, you know, people putting drugs in the, in the drinks and things like that. So yeah. Never mind the drugs in the drink. Like (laughs) the alcohol is bad enough as it is. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I, I mean, she doesn't subscribe to my standards and that's fine, but I just want her to be safe and I want her to be able to have fun in a, in a healthy way. Um, I think she's pretty sensitive to the fact because we have talked about it a lot to the fact that if she chooses to drink, there's a very high probability that she'll become an alcoholic. So I just hope that she remembers that. Yeah. And I think, you know, anyone who drinks is putting themselves at risk at that right whether it's their parents grandparents just going back as far as you want to go right but anyone it can be prone to that because alcohol is a drug right like it's fascinating isn't it that we talk about alcohol as if it's it's something it's, it's its own unique entity but it's still a drug ultimately yeah. so you mentioned there that your parents were alcoholics and I think when when I was kind of reaching out and chatting with you about it that's kind of what we were looking at I'd be really interested to hear about what our experience was like for you yeah so my parents were very young when they had me I'm the oldest and my mom was 17 my dad was 20 they didn't have a lot of resources and I now knowing some things about trauma I think they each had their own trauma that they went to alcohol to solve. Um, very young, I didn't really know the difference. I I can't really tease apart in my mind, like my dad sober and my dad not sober. It's mm-hmm. kind of all one in my mind. Um, I think as I got older, I could see more the effects of it's, it was really, I, and I would lump together their drug and alcohol use. Um, but like my dad would go through a 12 pack of beer in one night 
right? And he would barely, it, he would barely seem drunk or buzzed at all. Mm. So this was just ve- a very normal part of my life. But I will say that my parents' relationship, they were never actually married, but they were together for over 20 years and their relationship was very volatile. Like some days I would come home and they would be like throwing things at each other. And I remember one time I came home from school and one of them, I don't know who had thrown a beer at the wall and you could see the mark, the splash and the mark and the can up on the floor. And I was like, what happened? And and my mom kind of brushed it off. Well, that stayed there for years. My mom refused to clean it up. And of course my dad never would do anything like that. So it was like this, like screaming at me all the time, this reminder about really the way I feel and think about it is my parents' relationship and how volatile it was and how to be honest, as a kid, I was afraid. It was just plain fear all the time. I just never knew what I was going to get, right? Sometimes they were very happy and they got along. Sometimes my dad would be very withdrawn, just super quiet, didn't want to be around the family. And sometimes he would be very angry. And same thing with my mom. She would have these kind of depressive episodes and then she would just go off the handle and all this anger and vitriol. And it was just like steer clear when that happens. Right. Um, But now that I'm older and I have some life experience, I can see how the drug and alcohol use was probably playing a big factor in that. Yeah. And as you say that, it kind of made me think of that, of the window of tolerance, you know, and for anyone who's listening, wondering what the window of tolerance is, is something that we use to kind of describe like our emotional range and whether we are going into fight or flight effectively and yeah it's kind of like there was those two ends of the spectrum right there was the anger and then there was the just checking out basically and not wanting to be involved with anything and so what was it sorry go on oh I was gonna say I don't think that there was a very big window of tolerance I think it was usually activated or shut down There wasn't that sort of like calm, creative, connected space very often. Every once in a while, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you, because that's important. There is a a middle window (laughs) and that is like calm, grounded, just kind of, yeah. And so that that was very reduced that you noticed that in your parents. Yeah, almost non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can relate, man. Like when I was drinking, I found that I'd, I'd be very reactive a lot of the time either because I was drunk or because I was in withdrawal. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you do become reactive to it and then you might be aware of it and then you beat yourself up and then it just kind of like escalates and gets a little bit out of control in terms of how you think and feel about yourself. And so for you then, as, as like a young girl kind of witnessing this, kind of living in fear, right? Like seeing that beer stain on the wall, being reminded of it all of the time. And what, what were you learning? about yourself or about your parents or about alcohol i'm gonna i'm gonna start with one question what did you learn about yourself there yeah i learned that i did not want to be like my parents Mm. and really up until very recently when i came into coaching i've been coaching for about five years a couple years before that um learning about coaching 
I basically lived my life making all the decisions opposite to what I thought my parents would have made. So they dropped out of high school. I'm going to college. They didn't get married. I'm getting married. They had a very unstable relationship. I'm looking for stability, right? They, they worked like paycheck to paycheck, very little money. I was like, I'm going to have a good job. I'm going to provide for my family. I wouldn't say I ever thought like I'm going to be rich, but I just wanted that income that would provide stability in my life. So it was almost like they were controlling me in the negative where whatever they would do, like they drink, they smoke. I'm not doing that at all. Mm. Right. So it was kind of this self-righteousness, which, you know, isn't always attractive either, but it helped me survive. It helped me get through that time in a way that was, I would say healthier for me. I mean, I definitely did things that weren't completely healthy, but I was so like, I wanted to put everything that I associated with them at arm's length and do the exact opposite. So it worked out for me. I know some kids do that and their, their parents are really great and they still want to do the exact opposite. Um, I just happen to have negative examples. And then the other thing I will say is I think my parenting style has been very informed by how I felt around my parents. I felt honestly, what I would say it is, is emotional neglect. I just, I wanted to be close to my parents. I wanted them to kind of see me for who I was. I wanted to have a relationship with them and they, they were certainly like cheerleaders for me. I I got very good grades, graduated top of my class and they were always like, we're so proud of you, you know? So it's not like they were completely absent. They were in my life. It's just, they were emotionally absent. They, I remember several occasions of my dad standing outside, smoking a cigarette in the rain. He loved the rain. He grew up in Western Washington state on the West coast of the U S. So he loved that kind of rainy and it didn't happen very often. I remember sitting outside with him, looking at the stars at night. We did have moments of connection, but overall it felt like I was always like knocking on the door and like trying to get in. And he wasn't ever there. He was just very absent. And, you know, like, I I know he loved me. I know he did the best he could. Like he worked really hard to provide for our family, but emotionally there wasn't a lot that he could offer. And I think that I've strived to do the opposite with my kids, to, to be warm and to be attuned to them and to be involved in their lives. And even, you know, I, I was a stay at home mom for 16, 17 years. I chose not to have a career and I I don't know that it was a conscious decision, but I think probably looking back, it was that same, like, I'm going to do the opposite of what my parents did. Yeah, it's so fascinating that it can go that way, you know, because it could totally have gone the other way, right? Like you could have started doing what they were doing, right? Like drinking and using drugs and then getting into unhealthy relationships and all of the things, but it kind of, your brain instinctively was like, no, that's not the direction I want to go and just ended up doing the complete opposite. And an expression you used when you were sharing that, and and thank you, was the idea of... uh, emotionally absent Mm -hmm. 
I think it's such a massive thing, isn't it? Because, you know, with addiction, generally we are emotionally absent. Like, you know, addictions are because we're not wanting to feel a lot of the time. Uh, and we might not even be conscious of why that might be, you know, but we're kind of like driven to that get getting away from it, right? Like that motivational triad, avoid pain, peace and seek pleasure. And yeah, being emotionally absent like has such a profound impact, not only on yourself, but also if you've got children on them as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, there was just this loneliness and this sadness. And I will also say being the oldest, I tried to like fix my parents. I remember when I was eight, my dad asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And I said, I want you to stop smoking. Oh, wow. So like as a very young child, I had this awareness yeah. of what my parents were doing that was good for them and not good for them. And he, here's the thing is he did, he stopped smoking for an entire year. And then when I turned nine, he started smoking again. And I just think that is so sad. And I remember being so like, like happy for him that he could stop. Like, like there was like hope. Right. And then when he started smoking again, I was like, oh no. Right. Like I was so disappointed and, and it honestly felt like a slap in the face in a way. Like he did, he, it was just like a surface level thing. He was just doing it for the wrong reasons really. But I mean, an eight-year-old doesn't have the ability to say, I want you dad. Like, I want you to be able to look in my eyes. Right. And not think, be thinking about other things. And to me, it was like, stop smoking. And so the fact that he like started smoking again, I was just like, Oh, it felt like he didn't care about me, which I know logically he did, but I think that's like really how it felt. Like I was just like, Oh, I'm not going to be able to change him. He doesn't care about me. Mm. And we can see, you know, he doesn't care about me. And then like, he's, he's not caring about himself as well. And like, and that's kind of what you're seeing, right? That's why you probably made that request at eight years old for your birthday to ask him to stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he was the youngest of seven siblings. His parents were very strict as I've gotten older and kind of can put some of this context around things. I think he probably was really lonely. I think he probably felt very unloved himself. Um, I think he was really hard on himself in a lot of ways. He never said that, but it was just like, like our nervous systems, we can just feel each other. Right. And I just always felt this sort of like dejection, like he thought his life was going to be different and it wasn't, and there's no hope now. And I think he was actually a really smart guy. Uh, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably around 12 years old when he, cause he was a high school dropout and he went back to get his GED, which is like a high school equivalency. And it like helps you get better jobs and things like that. And he couldn't finish it because he has dyslexia. And I didn't know that as a young child, I didn't know, but I just remember him coming home and saying, I can't do the reading and the writing. I, I just can't do it. The math and science, I got that. I'm good. But he just could not do the reading and the writing. And 
I think that there's something to that, right? That sort of like shame of being different, being not as good, feeling like there's something flawed about you. Mm. And I'm sure that that played into it, but I saw him as a very capable, smart, intelligent, large, he had a large heart. And that's how I saw him as a child. I just, he was like my hero. Right. And so like kind of feeling that from him, I think was both confusing and made me pick up on that feeling too. Like, well, if there's no hope for you, if you're dejected, then what does that mean about me? Mm -hmm. Right. So I tried, like I, I hustled, (laughs) I hustled. Right. And I didn't have that disability. I don't have dyslexia, so I don't know exactly what it's like, but I, I think I was kind of in this phase of like, I want to prove, I want to prove that I can be better than my parents. Right. And, and I think honestly, they kind of wanted that for me. They wanted me to do better, be better, but it's really hard to do that. It requires a lot of self-awareness and a lot of work when your parents are addicts and they don't give you the support that you really need. Right. Cause I, I was very independent at a very young age. I figured out how to apply for college, how to get to college, how to get all these scholarships. All I did was take the paper to them and sign here. Right. They did nothing. They, they really weren't able to, to help me in that way. Whereas I see a lot of my peers or like my kids' peers now, I'm like, Oh, this is what it's like to have parents that, that really care and are involved and, can support you in that way, even if they can't support you financially to support you. Like I'm encouraging you. I'm, I'm here for you. How can I help? Right. Mm. And that's the other thing, at least with my dad, his support always looked like how much money do you need? Do you need $20? And probably as a fairly young teenager, 15 years old, 14 years old, I stopped asking because I started seeing my parents as like, oh, they can't really even provide for themselves. How are they going to provide for me? I got to figure this out. And so it kind of led me down this path of hyper independence. Um, but I've been the last five years with coaching, I've been undoing all of that hyper independence and, you know, perfectionism. I don't, I can't show that I have needs because mm-hmm. my parents we're never able to meet those needs because of that emotional absence. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important point actually is that, you know, it, there is a lot of unlearning that goes on as we get older, right? Like, cause we have to unlearn all the stuff that we had to take on. Well, I say have to, but we take on at a time where if we didn't, it could have been dangerous per se, right? Like it was about survival. It was about, looking after yourself but there's an expression and that's you know what i've got it right here let me get it the strengths that got you here are now holding you back yes yeah because i think you're exactly right the things that we do in order to survive are not the things that we do in order to thrive Mm, yeah right and i do think that I encourage my clients. I think that people need to give themselves some grace for that, right? It's easy to, to look back and judge, right? I'm very careful to not judge my parents. I'm very careful to speak about my part of the experience 
because I genuinely don't have judgment. I genuinely believe that their resources were limited and they absolutely were doing the best that they could with the resources they did have. There was always food on the table. We always had a house over our heads. We always had a bed to sleep in, right? So it could have been worse and it is worse for many people. I mean, I really, for most of my life, had both parents in my home, right? And it was chaotic. Uh, there were moments of happiness and, you know, that, but for the most part, it was confusing and chaotic, but I had both parents, right? So there, there was a lot of good. And I do think we have to give ourselves credit for that, for the things that we did for our survival. In my case, sometimes I think, I'm sure this isn't entirely true, but I think I just got lucky. Like in a way, I feel like, I got, I threw myself into school and being a good student and learning. There's an addiction there for me, right? I was just telling my husband the other day, am I addicted to like self-help, right? And it's not a terrible thing to be addicted to, but it's still an addiction in a way, right? It's like, could I walk away from all the coaching and my business if I needed to? I don't, I don't know if the answer is yes. Right. So just because my addiction is a, you know, socially acceptable one doesn't mean that there's not work for me to do. Right. And so just, I I like to have lots of grace in that context of, yeah, you did what you had to do to survive. And I honestly think of, because of the work I do with trauma, that alcohol and other drugs, that's how we regulate ourselves. Mm. It's how we feel better. Right. And so how is it any different than like reading or gardening or something like that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely an attempt to make ourselves feel better. And I think there is some validity to it, right? Like it does kind of switch off the brain. Like that's something I hear a lot from the guys I work with, you know, like they just, they drink because they want to shut off their mind, you know? And, um, yeah, so they want to feel really what they're saying is they want to feel different because they don't like the way they're thinking because how they're thinking is doesn't feel great, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's definitely an attempt to feel better. Uh, but the challenge is it's a drug, you know, and then the more you do it, the more you want it, the more you want it, the more you become dependent on it, a bit like learning, right? <laughs> and it gets to a point where you think that you can't be without it as if like it's the only solution, but now like the a lot of the time it's the thing that is creating the problem at the same time so what tell me more about like the the work you do with trauma then yeah i really my my experience growing up with my parents i would say i had a lot of complex trauma developmental trauma the effect of having parents that weren't able to be fully present i had a lot of shame my, like, I remember I went through the life coach school and they told us in training, don't coach people on, I'm not good enough. Right. They're like for everyone, that's the thought underneath most of whatever we're doing. I'm not good enough. And I was like, but is it the thought for most people? That's like the first thing on their mind. I mean, I know for most you know, when you're working with a client, you can always dig deep enough and we get to that thought. It's a very human feeling, that shame. Um, But it was like, I was always performing in order to prove my worth. 
And about three years into my business, I realized, I thought that my trauma was behind me. I was like, I'm good. I've got this beautiful life. I have a house in the suburbs, three car garage, money in the bank. My kids are healthy. I've got this awesome husband, right? Like Mm -hmm. all the boxes were checked. Why do I feel so miserable? Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's what got me into coaching. And I had at the time I was calling myself a shame coach. That's really what I coached around was this not enoughness feeling. And my business wasn't really like, I was kind of holding steady. I was proud of a lot of things, but I was sitting with a coach and she asked, have you ever thought about, you know, going to therapy or coaching for your trauma? And it was like this light bulb went off where I could see the relationship between my trauma and my business success. And it was just like, oh, how did I not see this before? That the experience I was having on the inside was holding me back from having success or more success on the outside. And so I hired a coach for my own trauma, working through a lot of my relationship with my parents and feeling alone and feeling abandoned and all of that. And she worked somatically. So she didn't really do the mindset work, the, you know, thoughts, create your feelings, drive your actions. And I really made so much progress in the six months working with that coach that I decided this, this is what I want to do. This has helped me so much. And I think it was, you know, in combination with the mindset work that that's what I want to help people with. I want to help people heal from these really deeply embedded feelings that, you know, we coach on over and over and over again, and we don't make any headway. And that's when I feel like somatic work is really useful. And so I've just kind of fallen in love with somatics. And I have found that I just have to follow my own journey. And that's just so much a big part of my story is, you know, what I would call trauma in my life and, you know, parents that were young and that were addicts and that didn't have a lot of money and, um, you know, sexual abuse and the, you know, the violence and things like that. Um, it all, it all, you know, created who I was, but now I'm kind of teasing apart who am I, because that's who I am and who am I, or what did I do? because it was a coping mechanism for my trauma. And that's, that's the work that I do with my clients as well. Yeah. Amazing. So impactful. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, that most people carry, I'm not enough or a version of I'm not enough. And it's kind of their beliefs, core, core beliefs that we have different flavors of them from a young age, right? Like, cause we're not able to kind of really understand what's going on around us. And especially if you've got emotionally absent parents, then that's going to be really challenging to kind of work through those experiences. And they just kind of get locked in and, and uh, stored and show up in different ways in our lives. I mean, for me personally as well, the last year, I've done a lot of somatic work, like stuff that I had never anticipated. And I've just got a whole new appreciation for what feelings are and, uh, my understanding of them because for a long time I didn't have a clue <laughs> I'm totally honest like my dad was a drinker and sounded a bit similar to yours right like he was either, in my opinion it felt like he was either angry or he just wasn't available um there was nowhere in between so yeah it's a lot of unlearning to take place and it's not to say that everyone listening right like has to have some form of therapy or um somatic work but 
it can be helpful and it really can just noticing what's going on in the body and because what happens what i noticed and i don't know about you Danita, but when i when i notice what's happening in my body i also notice the belief that it's attached to it as well so whilst it is somatic like there is that the mind body thing going on at the same time and all of a sudden i'm i, I can see the belief but i also can see like the seven-year-old who's believing it and it just becomes so much easier just to just let it go yeah so much more compassion when you see yourself in that way right absolutely yeah 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 i will say there's a book that i read it's by gabber mate who's a big he's a doctor and then he's kind of moved into the trauma arena um, psychiatrist. Also, he wrote a book many years ago called in the realm of hungry ghosts. Maybe yeah. you've mentioned it on the podcast, but that yeah, book. A lot. Yeah. It, I think I probably read it two years ago, right at the beginning of my journey, working with a trauma coach, it really opened my eyes to like the extent of what we will go to, which, you know, usually looks like drugs and alcohol to feel good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I just, I think of that book often and just the, the neurobiology and all of that with, with addiction. And it really does help me have a lot of compassion for people with addiction. And, and I'm also super grateful that I never went down that route. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I was probably primed for that. Um, just through sheer willpower, I avoided it. So. yeah he's uh incredible incredible guy actually i love a lot of his work and two things one thing was around the the compassion right like you're saying that you could look back and have compassion for your dad and understanding and i i find that at the same time like holding space for like it wasn't okay at the same time right like it doesn't mean what I'm trying to say here for anyone listening is that like, you don't have to agree with what happened to you in the past. Like that's not what compassion's about, but it's compassion, like having an understanding of what was going on for them. And it's not even really for them, is it? It's for you, right? Like to, for your own sense of well-being. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I think through the work that I've done, I've been able to separate the impact that it had on me yeah. from them as a person and what was going on for them and kind of the why, right? So that's where the compassion comes up is I can see my dad as a young child. I can see him as somebody who was suffering and was doing what he knew to ease that suffering. And for that reason, I don't have judgment and I feel a lot of compassion. The impact it had on me, there are times when I'm like, it's not fair and I wish things had been different, but I can't go back and change that. So I, I like to stay in the realm of what now, right? Mm -hmm. Does it help me to be angry at my parents? Does it help me to, you know, have negative feelings? For me, it doesn't help. I don't, I just don't find very much use in it. Maybe I haven't gotten there yet in my journey, but I'm just really looking more toward the future and the impact I want to have on my kids and my grandkids. And, um, I don't feel like it is useful to, you know, quote unquote, hold them accountable or anything like that. And maybe this also speaks to the fact that I'm a person of faith. And so I feel like they, you know, they'll meet their maker, so to speak, and they'll suffer for the impacts that they've had 
on people. I, I just, I'm also a big believer in generational trauma and the fact that my parents, like I said, they did the best that they could with the resources they had. And that comes from their parents and their parents and their parents. Yeah, right. right. Am I going to be angry at all of my previous generations? Like that doesn't feel useful. And so I just, I just find it's really useful to have, to, to have compassion and understanding. Like it wasn't personal to me. My, my, my dad, my parents weren't trying to like make my life miserable. In fact, I think the opposite of tr- is true. And I kind of come from a position of, my trials, the difficult things in my life have really refined me and have given me opportunities to be better and to, you know, to serve the world. Really. Now I'm here as a trauma coach and I don't think I would be here helping other people work through their trauma if I didn't have that experience. So in a way I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that great question, isn't it? It's not why why did it happen but how is it happening for me yeah yeah what's another happening? great question yeah is uh by gabo mate that was the other thing i wanted to mention and remembered is that it's not why the addiction but why the pain yes mm. yeah pain is inevitable suffering is optional yes yeah, yeah. so it's I like to think, I like to play the what if game, right? What if I had been born to different parents? Would I be a different person? Would I be on a different path? If I didn't have parents who were alcoholics, would I maybe be the alcoholic? I don't know. Right. So I, I just, we're, we can't avoid pain. So I, I've heard other people say that if we could all throw our struggles into a pile in the middle of the room, and then we saw everybody else's struggles. We pick yeah. our own back. Yeah, right? Right. you're like, oh no, I don't fancy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's a funny visual. Yeah, I just think that maybe I chose it in some way, in some kind of existential way, right? Like maybe this was my path because that's the learning that I had to do to become the fullest version of me. Yeah. So that's those are the kinds of things that bring me more comfort then figuring out like, why me? Why do my parents have to be like this? I just think, okay, well, what am I going to do with the the hand that I was dealt? Mm. Right. Why not me? I think that's going to be the title of my book. I'm starting to write a book and I think that's going to be the title. Amazing. You heard it here, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, your journey. I think it's been amazing. And is it slightly unique and different to a lot of guests I have? Because usually it's like the impact of alcohol, but yours is, it is about the impact of alcohol, but just in a different perspective. So I really appreciate you being able to come on and share that with us. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I just hope that the parents out there listening hear that, I know that the journey is hard, but it's worth it for your, for your children and the future impacts that, that you're creating by doing this work. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and like never use, use it to shame yourself, right? Like, cause that just has the complete opposite effect. I know I've tried it and it just, I tried it a lot and it still doesn't work. Yeah. You're so, I just think anyone doing the work to 
disentangle themselves from addiction of any kind. Mm. So courageous. You're so yeah. courageous. And I just give, give you all kudos for that. Yeah, it's a great point, actually, because when you actually look at it, you can see like the courage, the resilience, the strength, like the fortitude, the determination, right? But like you might not see those things whilst you're in it, but like actually it takes a lot to be able to like actively come through the other side. Yeah, totally. That That's what I think. So yeah, cool. I, I just applaud everyone that's doing that work. Nice. One final question before you do depart, though, and that is, what does it mean to be radically human for you? Oh, I think what it means to be radically human is to feel, to mm. feel all of the feelings, positive, negative, comfortable, uncomfortable. I think to be human is to have feelings, sensations, emotions. Some of those are really difficult to be with, but I think that's what it means. Love it. All right. Brilliant. Thanks so much. So Denita, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where would they do that? Yeah. You can find my website is danitabremer.com and I'm on Instagram mostly. And that's at Danita Bremer. And I'm also on Facebook, but not my most favorite place to play. I think I'm at Danita Bremer coaching on Facebook. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll share all those links in the show notes so people can go find you. All right. Well, thank you once again, Danita. It's been a privilege to have you on. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. You're welcome. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Appreciate all of you. I'll see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.